for the first time ever in Nikon Digital Stereo. Don't lie. This is a sitcom club. What? People might think we've mixed this in stereo. It is. And we haven't. This will be in mono like all of our previous guests. It's in Nikon. It made Birds of a Feather funnier. It's in Nikon mono. All right, then. It's not in stereo. But it's still the sitcom club, and this is Hey Ho Moon Can Co. And you are? Yes, I am. The question that everybody, and I do mean everybody, wants to know the answer to, Ocho, is... You've been keeping people waiting for the past seven days. Their response has been huge. Time to tell us at last, how was the Juicy Free Christmas special? (laughs) It was weird. After all that discussion about how it was a very BBC thing to have your Christmas special be shot on 16mm with no studio audience, Yorkshire Television's Duty Free did the same. And on location. Oh, what, you mean Kirkstall? For a while, I thought, okay, fine, the outdoors is clearly Spain. But for a while, I was in no doubt that the interior had to be that Novotel off the M606. (laughs) But I can't remember what it said, but there was definitely a sign in Spanish that looked like it was integral to the structure, not, not just something stuck over. I signed in English, so I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the whole thing is, is shot in Spain. I mean, why would they have used the interior of a Novotel when they could have just got some Spanish hotel? It just makes life generally easier. You keep your Spanish filming down to a minimum. Zoom out there, do some exteriors, zoom back home, find somewhere a bit closer to base to do the really long scenes. Why not? I mean, this is just an experiment, right? Why not... Film all the scenes in Spain and film them in an actual Spanish hotel and just don't ask permission. Just sneak them all in there, film the scenes, get it over and done with, out the door before anybody notices. But if somebody does notice, then your Christmas special's down the Swanee. Well, I would have preferred Not a Christmas a plan. I would have preferred a Christmas special of down the Swanee. Which... What a big steamboat. <laughs> yes, with little Jimmy Clifford at the helm. That would be better. It wasn't bad. My wife thought it was funny at first. By the time it ended, she went, okay, I couldn't really take much more of that because it was an hour-long special and it did kind of pall after a while. But initially, it was pretty good stuff. Better than I remember. Have you yet seen the hour-long Home to Roost Christmas special, which is on that network DVD as well? Ah, no, I haven't, but it's on there. Okay. Is that 16 mil? No, it's all... VT and no no <laughs> it's it's all VT and it's audience based as well but it is also an hour long and I'm not making any comment about the the quality of the episode just that it was repeated one Christmas on Christmas Day by Channel Four around about one o'clock or so and about fifteen minutes before the end our big family Christmas dinner was ready. <laughs> I made all the excuses under the sun because I just wanted to see the end of the show. It wasn't even that good, but I thought, I've stuck with this for 45 minutes. I don't have a video recorder with me, so I'm going to see this through to the end. So I probably made everybody's turkey a little bit colder that year. But don't blame me, blame Eric Chappell. Oh, I watched Alleluia. Oh, that And I could bad. tell straight away from the tone of your voice there, the way that you said that, it wasn't a glowing recommendation. Oh, I was a stinker. It was a Christmas Carol parody. It was worse than the three, two, one. 
Christmas Carol parody. Surely that's not possible. In terms, in terms of three, two, one version is entertaining, but in terms of oh, well, there you go. That's the big difference. The three, two, one version is entertaining. <laughs> Do they in any way bastardize Dickens' original work? Yeah, there's only one ghost. Oh, what? And I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> right. Okay. This is unfair because I haven't given you any prior knowledge of this, but I've only just thought of it myself. So we're going to struggle through together with this. In your ideal imaginary sitcom, you're going to do a pastiche of A Christmas Carol. You've got to choose three actors to play the three ghosts. Go. You can have anybody you like from any time period. It doesn't even matter if they don't quite match up. I'm going to give you the first one. I'm going to suggest, because we're not looking for full-on drama here, obviously. If you're looking for full-on drama, then you get the people who really I mean, played the in roles. In Hallelujah, Jacob Marley was played by... Jeffrey Bailden. Oh, that's a good one. Yes, that's good. I was actually thinking there, Richard Vernon. Yes. Oh, or Lionel Jeffries. No, Lionel Jeffries strikes me as more of a fezzy wig. There seems to be something hale and hearty about Jeffries. Okay, so what about Christmas Present? Well, I'm always surprised that Brian Blessed's never played the part. That's exactly who I was just thinking of. I was going to say, if you were to do it now, if Miranda's Christmas special was a pastiche mm. on A Christmas Carol, then almost certainly be Brian Blessed, wouldn't it? Have you ever seen the George C. Scott version of A Christmas Carol? No, I haven't. It was supposed to be Leo McKern as the Ghost of Christmas Present, and he dropped out, and it was Edward Woodward instead. Oh, yeah, no, I, I had a memory there of Edward Woodward being in that role somewhere, <laughs> yeah. but I couldn't remember where. And... You, you keep thinking that he's he's going to kill Scrooge. The contempt just flows from him. And he seems to be memorable more for his anger than his jollity. <laughs> and that bit at the end where, you know, beneath his robe, there are the two starving children. He says, look, beneath my robe, I was willing to believe that it was going to be Russell Hunter under there. <laughs> I got you that gun, Mr. Christmas. That was it. Bang! Oh, no more screwed. Have you heard, by the way? New Equalizer. Oh, really? Yeah, and I mean, every TV show from the 1980s keeps floating around development hell. Well, the name that I saw was... I think it was Wesley Snipes. Dave Benson Phillips. Oh, no, okay. Oh, that would have been superb. Oh, yes. I mean, what I would have wanted to know then was what was it on Dave Benson Phillips' list of alternatives to financial remuneration? that he would have accepted for the role. Because unless you're, if you're not familiar with that, on Dave Benson Phillips' website, where he's available for bookings, he's got this huge list of all these items that he will accept in return for making a personal appearance. And he's got it all worked out according to the type of appearance and length of appearance, exactly what particular items he would accept. You could actually, you could turn it into a little bingo game, to be honest. What would you do for a Marie Callender's microwave chicken pot pie? Uh, let me just check. He... Now, I don't want to misquote him, so this is subject to change. I believe that he will give you 30 seconds of his time on a landline phone call. Not mobile. Landline only. <laughs> so, Wesley Snipes, I look forward to another another one of those threads <laughs> that broke out when the Murder, She Wrote recasting was announced. Well, indeed, this this keeps on cropping up. But of course, revivals, that is our subject for today. But before we get on to revivals, still got to cast a couple more 
ghosts. I'm going to actually suggest for Christmas present, I'm going to suggest Mr. Tebbs of Grace Brothers, James Hater. Oh, yes. Of course, the original television sitcom star. Yes, yes. Because he played Mr. Pinwright in Pinwright's Progress, which I think started in 1947. Now, the ghost of Christmas future. Yet to come. Oh, okay. It's the thing that bugs me about productions that refer to him as the ghost of Christmas future. He's called the ghost of Christmas yet to come. I see. Well, I mean, what I suggest you do then is you must write to all the pantomimes in the UK because I think it could be fairly sure that if any stars of yesteryear editions of Crackerjack, for example, have staged their own local pantomime of Scrooge. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just going to bastardise it there and then I'm going to call it Scrooge instead of A Christmas Carol. I'm sure that at least a handful of them will have described him as a ghost of Christmas future. They're wrong! But does it matter? Okay, well, this is an outrage. Well, I'm a, yeah, I'm a traditionalist and I like your ghost of Christmas yet to come to be just a big cloak. I don't want to see the face. And if you ever get a version where the ghost speaks, well, you can just... Oh, well, that's like snoopy, isn't it? I mean, that's just not right at all. What, that pink panther? We've talked about that. So we want somebody who's famous and never makes a sound. So we want somebody who's famous and also willing to be anonymous and doesn't require any billing. Dusty Ben. Perfect. Seems a little bit sinister role for him. Because he's, he's rangy, you know. He's such Just a friendly character. He limited himself in three, two, one. Does not mean that he hasn't got range. Okay, I'll give you a suggestion. One which will be met with universal outrage. And I hope that he has his little music sting with him. Whatever he. Have we had past already? No, 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 no. You said go, the ghost. Of, is it Christmas yet to come? Past, present, yet to come. Yes. Right. It's going to be somebody tall. Yeah. This was supposed to be tall with the cloak. You just put Dusty on stilts. What I was going to say That's was, it's going to be a little bit of a gamble. Might cause some upset. Big Bird. You can't get Big Bird to shut up. And his beak would stick out of the cowl. <laughs> no, well, what happens is, right, Big Bird turns up and he's just Big Bird. Well, hey, look at me. When, when they did the Muppets Christmas Carol, they took the decision that the ghosts would be unique to themselves. They would not be other Muppets. And are you saying you know more than the Muppet producers? Well, no, I'm not. But all I was going to suggest was it was going to be a swerve because Marley sees at the end of his bed, he sees Big Bird and he says, oh, look, you're Big Bird from the children's television workshop. You must mean me no harm because you're a lovely big fellowed friend. And then Big Bird rips off his head to reveal nothing underneath, to reveal that he's actually the ghost of whatever the hell's to come. So it, it's going to be a bit of a like a spooky little twist like that. But like I say, I am prepared for the backlash from PBS stations across the US. And as Scrooge, Edwin Ridgefield. Well. <laughs> and it's, it's nothing about helping the poor. It's just turning down his language. <laughs> if you don't get that reference, you need to go back and listen to prior episodes of the sitcom club. We're not making any comment on Edward Richfield being a, a filthy, foul-mouthed son of a gun, are we? No, it's just... It's oh, just, no, no, no. No, it's my hearing. It's, yes, it's your. It's, it's entirely... Yes, it's entirely... The fault is your entirely foul mine. mind. Yeah. Well, before we get down to revivals, for that is our subject today, 
A few bits of outstanding business, first of all. Thank you very much indeed, firstly, to all of our new followers. We have a lot of new followers within the past two weeks or so on Facebook and on Twitter. So welcome if this is the first time that you've ever heard us. I always mention this at the end of the podcast, but if you've never heard me say it before, on sitcomclub.com you can find links via iTunes and also a straightforward XML feed to all of our previous shows going all the way back to April. But welcome. We hope that you stay with us throughout the festive season and beyond. We'll be here into the new year. We're not even taking a Christmas or New Year break. We are non-stop, apart from that two and a half months that we took over over the summer. Let me say also a big thank you to our very own Dr. Chris and Troy, who's been doing a lot of good work on the publicity for Sitcom Club and also has been doing some bits and pieces on the website, which we'll reveal more about in due course, probably early in the new year. Lots of you getting in touch with us about this week's topic, so thank you to all of you who got in touch with us. We'll be giving you a wee name check later on as and when your topic comes up. But a couple of people just to mention, Matthew Sweet, not in relation to revivals, but mentioning the recent hashtag TV shows nobody ever mentions, tweeted, anyone mentioned Bootle Saddles? Nobody mentioned it even then. Monday nights after Ballymore's Get Set Go. Now, Ultra, of course, you're a big fan of Bootle Saddles, aren't you? I was delighted to find out what it was called because I did watch every episode at the time. I couldn't remember anybody who was in it. And I was delighted getting hold of the Radio Times comedy guide. It would easily search and find, yes, it was Bootle Saddles. And then I found that the first episode was on YouTube, missing the last couple of minutes. And I'm watching it and I really want to see the rest because I do not see how there are six episodes in this concept. (laughs) I'm not saying that they didn't do it. I'm just saying I'd be curious to see where they take the idea. But I'm fairly sure I mentioned Bootles. I may have only just shouted Bootle Saddles at a certain point when you were asking for titles. <laughs> but yes, I think we have mentioned Bootle Saddles. I think you have, And yes. anybody who's been any film buffs who've been brought here by Matthew Sweet's retweet might like to know the fact that discussing recasting last time, I did have a little rant about the pronunciation of Abelgance. Well, I got angry about that. <laughs> Mispronounced his name in an episode of Man About the House, you see. You're over it now. Just barely. <laughs> and the other person... She said one... Abel Gans. She's supposed to be a film snob. She can't pronounce Abel Gans. I still haven't even worked out who or what Abel Gans is. Abel Gans, he directed Napoleon and LaRue. Now, hang on. When you say directed Napoleon, do you mean... At the time, or do you mean he made a film about Napoleon? Well, this is the great thing. He makes a film about Napoleon. I don't know how long the longest version runs. Probably about Best five and a half hours. Current restoration that's going around by Kevin Brownlow is five and a half hours long. Well, I saw it when they showed it on Channel 4, and I think they showed it across two nights. Well, that's ridiculous. I don't think it was quite as long, though, but there's been more added to it since. The TV edit is only four hours fifty. But the current version going around is five and a half hours long. It's a five and a half hour film about Napoleon. I'm probably mispronouncing Napoleon. Probably put the emphasis somewhere different in French, but I'm not in Man About the House. That's the difference. Who's attention span in the last five and a half hours? <laughs> this is the great thing. It stops in 1796. It's five and a half hours. And it doesn't even get to the end of the story. It gets to sort of partway through because there was supposed to be more and there weren't. I see. So he was hoping to turn it onto series like the carry-ons. Well, that that would be good too. If it was like the carry-ons, yes, it would. I'm, I'm going to say that he'd be even less 
amused by Charles Hawtrey's billing antics than that carry-on guy whose name escapes Peter Rogers, that's it. So imagine making a five-and-a-half-hour film about the carry-on team, and it ends with the making of carry-on regardless. <laughs> well, as long and, as there's a promise, And then they went on to make to other films. Well, we don't have time to tell you that. Well, that sounds like a documentary that we saw recently. But... Oh, oh, that was cold. <laughs> yeah, it was. Okay, well, I mean, I'm going I'm to wait until we see what turns up at Christmas, and hopefully the void will be filled. Anyway, let me also say hello to Simon Dunn, who has a very interesting advent calendar on his website. His advent calendar is sitcom-related each and every day. His website is simondunn.me.uk. Recently featured on his advent calendar was Captain Butler, which we've all got fond memories of, haven't we? The way you said that makes me think I'm supposed to have a reaction, and I have no reaction. I personally have a soft spot for sitcoms which are set principally outdoors and yet are entirely shot in a studio hey hello duty free again yes. i'm gonna have to actually get some yeah. episodes of duty free because i'm trying to explain to my wife this is the first time she'd ever seen the show it's like, the main sitcom itself is entirely indoors <laughs> but outdoors it's all kirkstall yeah well i presume this would apply to the one i've got in mind as well high and dry the television adaptation of the radio sequel to Dad's Army. Now, that was a bit of a mouthful. Radio sequel to Dad's Army was It Sticks Out Half a Mile. And it was about John LeMessurier, Ian Lavender, Bill Pertwee. They're doing up this dilapidated old pier. But four years later, it's remade as High and Dry with Bernard Cribbins and Richard Wilson. And again, Yorkshire production, so may well be Corkstall again. And it's all indoors. Fantastic. It's set up here, for God's sake. There's even scenes when they're supposed to be in the water. And it's all indoors. It's brilliant. Do they just completely sever the Dead's Army link? Yes. They don't actively mention Warmington on sea. It would have been fabulous if Bernard Cribbins had walked into Richard Wilson's office and said, hmm, do you think that's wise? Hmm. But no, he didn't, unfortunately. There was no I don't attempt. Mean, I don't mean about them pretending to be characters or pretending to be related or anything like that. Just sort of said, this is the Warmington Pier. That would be fabulous. No, they don't say that. I mean, they've still got, fundamentally, it's still the same show, but no, any link with Dad's Army is, is severed. Oh, I know. Shame. Yeah, no, that was, again, I'm going to admit it, if, if new listeners haven't heard me say this before. Along with Take a Letter, Mr. Jones, this was one of the shows that I used to set an alarm for on a Sunday morning when it was airing on UK Old. I may also have set the alarm on Saturday mornings for Trouble in Mind on Granada Plus. No! I'd rather not confirm that because I've never even told you that, Ocho, so... Whoa! Yeah! Anyway... Hang on a minute. How many weeks did you set your alarm for that? <laughs> it wasn't every week. It wasn't every week. I would week. say one. I think that's fact, a bit right. I would say that before the first ad break, you were back in bed and dead to the world. <laughs> I definitely set the alarm at least once very early on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about, I don't know, 7am for Harry Worth in How's Your Father? Oh, hang on. No, I remember there was a third show. The third show in the UK Gold Sunday morning lineup. It was Take a Little Mr. Jones, High and Dry, and of course, everyone's favourite, Plaza Patrol. So, moving on. 
revivals. Why, why was I supposed to re- respond to Captain Butler? What am I missing here? I liked it. <laughs> so straight away, you've got an idea as to what this show is like. It's Craig Charles, and he's supposed to be a pirate, basically. And he's got his crew, and they get up to all manner of hijinks. And it's all quite broad, studio-based, on this boat. And it's a bit crude. And there you are. And the entire thing is available on 4OD. So watch it now. And enjoy. So revivals. (laughs) They're a bad idea. Good night, everybody. I think, again, we need to... Put a bit more meat on the bones there. Okay. Do you put meat on bones? Surely you take meat off bones. Who the hell puts meat on bones? I don't know what chefs do. I'm not a chef. I need to see that sitcom of Lenny Henry, Chef. Now, I recall that being on film, but with a laugh track. Yes, it was. Was that not one of those funny... You know, like, you got that period in the mid-90s, or the late-90s, rather, there was a period when programmes were being shown in 49 on analog because they were also available in 69 for the tiny handful of people who had digital receivers. But a few years before that, you had that sort of wasn't that like a sort of phony film look that was sometimes applied where they just cut the top and bottom off a little bit? My recollection of Chef was it looked like the real thing. It went through different stages. For instance, the first series of The League of Gentlemen, I think, was shot on VT but it was field removed but they lit it properly. Whereas I think my family, they just lit it for VT and then just knocked out half the movement information. Yeah, And it that's... looked like hell. Yeah, They that... did the same to Casualty. That's right. You do sometimes see those episodes of my family turn up on gold and they look terrible. Anywho, to move on to the subject in hand this week, revivals. We'll cover the Liver Birds and the legacy of Reginald Perrin momentarily. But the first one that we're going to look at We need to look at them. The reason we picked the ones we did was because they all seem to pile on top of each other. This mid-90s revival boom on the BBC. Well, actually, one of them was a little bit earlier. Was that the year that Only Fools and Horses ended? In the case of one of the shows that we're going to talk about, so we may as well start with this one, Doctor at the Top. That was 1991. The other two shows that we're looking at, they were 96, and that was also the year that Only Fools and Horses, as it appeared, came to an end. Also in 96, the year before, Keeping Up Appearances came to an end. And I understand that that was a definitive end because Patricia Routledge, I think she said that she didn't want to do any more of them. So they knew that that was at an end. And also, you've got, I'm not sure about the British Empire. I think that started around about 1990 or thereabouts. So if that was still going, it was coming to the end. You'd also have... One Foot in the Grave has been around by this point for around about, I think it's even seven years, maybe. So, yeah, you've got quite a few popular shows which are, if not finished by now, certainly the end's in sight for them. So, yeah, I could well imagine that mid-90s BBC are looking for some new, as it were, hits. And in the case of these shows, they went back to the future, so to speak. So starting with Doctor at the Top, which was the one that I recall you being the most opinionated about. I have a a bee in my bonnet about Doctor at the Top to begin with, and that is that it ignores Doctor Down Under. Now, 
Doctor Down Under is actually one of my favourite sitcoms. Not just one of my favourite Australian versions of a UK show. I just like the show for itself. I was lucky enough to catch it on cable in the late 90s. My memory of there being an episode which is partly dialogue-free is false. That was actually because I fell asleep in front of the screen. That also explains why the second half of the episode was only 45 seconds long. But when I came to look at it again uh, about a year ago, I realised that my memory was actually faulty. But nevertheless, so it wasn't quite as experimental as I thought, but nevertheless, I really like that show. And it is just as much fun as the earlier shows. It is basically Duncan Waring, Dick Stewart Clark, running around in, I'm going to say Melbourne or Sydney or Canberra or whatever it is. But anyway, it's St Barnaby's Hospital's name of the place, and you've got an Ernest Clark-like figure there, and you've got a Richard O'Sullivan-like figure, and everything just works, and it's a really, really fun little show. And there are some recognisable names writing it, like Bernard McKenna, for example. You see John Bluthold turn up as a guest in one episode. So I think it was shown on ITV around about 1981, originally, and it just works. It's a lovely continuation of the franchise. Doctor at the top completely ignores that. Looking at the positions that they're in and that some of them have got family and looking at the age of the family and so on, yeah, they've just erased the... Maybe it's just to tweak the timeline and maybe Doctor Down Under takes place some years before it's actually broadcast and Doctor at the top is slightly in the future and maybe you could fit it in that way. You're not buying that, are you? <laughs> no, no, I'm not, no. I just think that they were taking liberties. I think that they were thinking, no, the last time anybody else seen these guys would be in Doctor on the Go, circa 75. So it's been 16 years, there you go. And whatever they got up to on the Seven Network is none of our business. So that annoyed me to begin with. But I didn't like that sour my enjoyment of the show. I had seen the first episode of Doctor at the Top on YouTube a few years back. And I remember sending it to yourself a few months ago and saying, take a look at this. Now, the first thing that struck me about Doctor at the Top, and I suspect that this is going to be a recurring theme in our conversation today, is that it is losing sight of what made the original shows so popular. If you've not seen them, the original Doctor shows, there are... Very, very occasionally, and I'm thinking even this may just be in maybe the first series or so with Barry Evans' character, very, very occasionally you'll get little dramatic points, you'll get little bits and pieces which aren't just for comedic effect. But by and large, the shows are raucous and they're very high energy. They don't, as we've previously described on the podcast, they don't just involve Waring and Dick Stewart Clark sitting on fire extinguishers around the dormitories. <laughs> That's just a picture in my head. <laughs> it was the way you described it in a previous time. The picture in my head was just a bunch of medical students running up and down corridors just going, ah, setting off fire extinguishers, sometimes into the camera, sometimes into the audience. And I can't budge that idea now. <laughs> Nobody would enjoy that more than myself. And if I ever discover an episode which even borders on that level of anarchy, then I shall send it to you forthwith. But 
the early shows, they've all got... I mean, they've all got a nice little plot that goes through them. Eventually, they graduate. They go into full-time practice. There's a couple of little... Not U-turns. There's a couple of little developments along the way. There's one series they're supposed to be on a ship. And they come back and so on. But the point about all of those shows taken together is that they're all fun. There's nothing heavy in them. There's nothing serious in them. There's certainly nothing medical. I mean, there's nothing like that in them. I mean, despite the fact that they're set in a hospital, they, they don't get bogged down in, in anything remotely depressing. And they're just such easy viewing. There's nothing in there which is going to make you feel low. I don't know if this is a BBC ITV thing, because all those early Doctor shows, they were all LWT. And here's the BBC trying to take this show and bring it back from 1991. I don't know if there's something about the BBC way of doing things that's caused this, but it's not fun anymore. Doctor at the Top, certainly the first episode, it's a real drag. And there are very, very long sections of dialogue which have no laughs, because they're not intended to have any laughs. You have, for example a section where Waring is talking about just the hours that he's working and the bills are going to pay and the size of the mortgage and so on and how he's unhappy about how his peers seemingly have done better than himself. And you've got this whole plot about how it's Professor Loftus, it's his 75th birthday and how they're going to have this big dinner for him and so on. It's taking so long to explain all of this in the first episode. And as a result, there aren't many laughs to be had. And the whole thing is rather a drag, to be honest. You look Have forward you to seeing them the again. Series? I've seen four of the episodes out of the seven so far. And to be fair, I mean, I'm talking specifically here about episode one. I am actually interested to see the remaining three episodes because, as you said, it does pick up. By the time you get into the middle of the series, there are some episodes. There's one written by Bill Audie, episode four, which is quite good fun for its own sake it's just a nice silly episode and doesn't get bogged down too much in what's gone on before or trying to explain who everybody is and so on but yeah certainly that first episode was a bit of a downer for me you look forward to seeing them all again i mean that's part of the appeal that you haven't seen these characters for a long time and you look forward to seeing them again but once you've seen them I don't know, it just it really is missing something in terms of its energy and the fact that it was a lot of fun when they were doing their stuff in the 70s and it just isn't that much fun now. I don't see there's any reason for them to have to start that way. I think episodes three and four, or episode four definitely, because it's written by Bill Oddie, starts just gag, 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 gag. And yet, I think you get an idea of who's where in career terms. I don't see there was any reason they could have just started with partway through a day and let's see them do their stuff and then have a little explanation. But yeah, episode one, I just seem to recall lots of, <laughs> right, this is what's happening. And there's also the retirement party plot line. Let's, let's stop and have people arrange the guests at a retirement party with the occasional gag. <laughs> but plenty of arranging the party. And that plot's actually extended over to the second episode as well. So really, you could have had all of episodes one and two condensed into a single episode. 
I thought episode three is is kind of where it maybe should have started. You do have something about NHS cuts, but it's used in a way that sort of pushes a comedy plot line along. So you have that acknowledgement, that's fine, but it also works, there's, there's a gag hanging on it. But who was still watching by episode three? As I understand it, there was quite a severe drop-off in audience figures. I think I've heard a figure of 12 million being cited for episode one of that series. And by a later episode, it was down to five million. And that's quite a severe drop. I still can't get away from this idea that... I'm wondering if perhaps there's somebody in the commissioning process has become involved and just thinks that the Doctor show of old just, it's not sophisticated enough. You know, we need something... Well, of uh, course, between the end of Doctor, wherever, and Doctor at the top, we've had Surgical Spirit. And I get a slight feeling, especially as, you know, they're all middle-aged and you've got consultants and you've got... I get a feeling there is a certain extent that somebody's been taking a look at Surgical Spirit and saying, we could do that, but we could do that with the added bonus of having characters people already care about. And the balance just isn't there. The thing is that I understand somebody saying, we don't want to see them playing pranks on each other in the way that they would have been in 1970. Now, that I understand. makes perfect sense. They wouldn't be playing the same kind of pranks on each other that they were 20 years earlier. But they can still have fun with each other. They're all still together. They've been friends all this time, according to the timeline of events as it's been laid out in excessive detail in episode one. There hasn't been any point at which anybody's disappeared and then suddenly come back. So you don't have that kind of thing going on. It's not like, like lads, for example, we'll talk about later on. There's not been any kind of gap where they need to catch up with one another. It does sort of strike you that they're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to get the the rub of having the characters come back and getting the, the kudos for that and getting the, the warm reception from the audience for seeing their old favourites again. And yet they're also trying to create a different comedy with them. And of course, as well as NHS, because, oh, my flagging libido, oh, my aching back. <laughs> and another vasectomy. <laughs> now you're gonna to have to explain that actually you're to trouble in mind him. was after this wasn't it yes trouble in mind which is about a psychiatrist having a vasectomy every... <laughs> i was gonna say every episode <laughs> what, what i mean is it's talked about a lot <laughs> it's... no trouble in mind was the same year i thought trouble in mind was 94 no 91 oh yes so you could have been one of the fortunate few and certainly in the case of Trouble in Mind, it would have been few. You could have seen everybody involved in the early Doctor series discussing vasectomies between one channel or another. Why didn't Richard O'Sullivan just walk straight into Doctor at the top? Just for the hell of it. Just to come in and say, oh, by the way, I'm a psychiatrist now. And I hope you'll stop by on ITV in the summer and check out my new series. <laughs> Well, there really isn't enough of that in British television. Characters just crossing networks going, what are you watching this rubbish for? Watch my show instead. If they'd all been in invited to appear on the Pat Boone Christmas special, that could have happened. But at last, that didn't. How many episodes of it do you see yourself? 
All seven. Really? Yes. I thought that's what we were doing. Didn't you say to me that you didn't think that you were going to get through an entire series of it? No, I said I didn't think I would get through all three series we were doing. Oh, I see. And I didn't. <laughs> right. No, I was trying to sort of spread myself a bit thinner with Reggie and what have you, but we'll come on to that. So if you've seen all seven episodes, does it become the show that you'd hope it would by the end of it? No. Oh, that's a letdown. <laughs> it gets a bit better. I say, I think episode three is the turning point, but it still keeps grinding to a halt. So, alas, Doctor at the Top was the final outing. There were no more revivals of the show. But personally, I recommend that you go onto eBay and get yourself a copy of the Australian Doctor Down Under DVD. I think it might be region four, so you may have to fiddle about your DVD player to get it to play, but it's well worth it. Which one are we going on to next? You seem to be in charge here. No. I have no idea what's going on. Well, we've got one of two. I only watched two episodes of The New Liver Birds. It wasn't called that. It would have been great if it had been called The New Liver Birds. <laughs> well, what we'll do, uh, before we get onto Liver Birds, we'll, we'll do a couple of little bits of feedback. And then we'll move on to 96. Yes, because I did ask on Twitter if anybody could think of any successful revivals. And I was kind of not counting Likely Lads... I don't know why I don't count Likely Lads, but I wasn't counting it. Well, it's just the thing is, is the length of time between last episode of one and first episode of the other. With Likely Lads, it's a five-year gap. Is it even a five-year gap? I think it is, isn't it? 67? Was that it's a five-year gap. That's the same gap as the gap between series one and two of Open All Hours. You had a four-year gap between series of Faulty Towers. Indeed. But I would still... Say that like the lads. Oh is... yes, it's definitely it definitely counts as a revival. But it's basically, at what point do the stakes get too high for revival to really be able to live up to its own hype? I mean, with all these shows that we're discussing, I think every one of them is subject to that whole sort of melancholy habit of saying, "Oh, we don't have shows as good as so and so these days." And of course, in your mind. The show that you're thinking of was absolutely packed full of laughs and never disappointed and there were no daft episodes at all. Well, I think the problem is now we, we also have this tendency, everything's just as good as it used to be. Let's try and forge a fake continuity between the franchises of the past and the franchises of the present. It's a very BBC thing as well. It is, it is. Holographic uh, Mocker and Wise. No, do not mention that. <laughs> But there is that kind of, ah, oh, everything's just, just the way it used to be and it doesn't... Every, so culture will always sort itself out. You don't need to... Having had subsequent generations always going, no, nothing's as good as it used to be. There is now this sort of voguish thing of, oh, don't be such a stick in the mud. Like, yeah, but is, isn't it possible for a medium or a genre to go through a malaise? And doesn't that happen if we don't take care? Because you talk to some people and they seem to think that no matter what you do, culture will take care of itself. It's entirely yeah. self-regulating. Well, I think that it was telling that the overnight figures for last year's Christmas shows, everything was under 10 million viewers. And I don't necessarily see any evidence in this year's listings that that's going to change. I hope it does because... You know, television's one of my big, big interests and always has been, and I don't want to see it just slowly 
fade away. I don't just want to see the television become a platform for work that was originally produced for other mediums. So, for example, I don't just want to see it turn into the place where you watch Netflix or where you watch a football game if you can't be there. A backdrop for the girls and boys who just don't know and just don't care and just complain when you're not there. (laughs) Well, let's hope that there's some ratings-busting shows this year and that they hit they're not going to hit only foals and horses figures obviously but let's hope that they at least reach maybe 12 million is that too much to ask for because when it gets into single figures well, if they deserve they, it well this is the thing i mean when it gets well okay there's two ways of looking at that if it gets 13 14 15 million viewers it deserves it whether we like it or not so if that many people choose to watch downton abbey this year good luck to them great Oh, I won't be one of them, but it would be nice to see a big old successful show like that. Obviously, the one I'm hoping is going to get huge viewing figures is going to be on Boxing Day, like yourself. I hope that Still Open All Hours is a huge success and that people are clamoring for more next year. And that it's good. Yeah, well, exactly, yes. But I do worry when the, the top rating shows of a period like Christmas are all in single figures as far as the millions are concerned. And I know that with obviously these days you've got to take into account things like iPlayer views and so on. But yeah, let's hope that there's a bit of a renaissance coming. We'll see. Nah, I'm a pessimist. Television sucks and deserves to die. But you don't have that view when it comes to music. No. Whereas I probably do. I'm open to an argument that music is not as dynamic as it used to be or should be. That's an entirely different argument for there's nothing good out there. Because there are, you know, local music scenes. There are, There is the do-it-yourself ethic, which can't exist in television. You can see a band as good as any great band of the past. Just by chance, they might be out there playing to a handful of people. You can't have a drama or a comedy as good as the dramas and comedies of the past with the same small resources. A fantastic band can play a small venue to a small audience with not very expensive instruments. There's no such real thing as budget television that can compare, and budgets are stretched thinner and thinner. Well, no, they're not stretched. They they now clump around things. So there are only a handful of dramas and a handful of comedies that have a lot of resources thrown at them, and they either crash and burn or they, they go on to be big successes that people talk about, like, oh, don't get me started. I'm going to go in my... You see, you had your chance there. I was going to talk about music, but not your, my brain just keeps pressing this just never point. Never, like ever try and convince tooth. me. Never try and convince me that Northern Soul is any good, and I'm happy. I've never tried to convince you that Northern Soul is any good. Well, you sent me that Banana Splits clip. Because it's a Banana Splits clip. I thought <laughs> you like that. I, of course, I like the Banana Splits. Of course I do. I'd rather, rather that was on for two the, hours. The best Banana Christmas Splits night. song is This Spot, which is more of a kind of a bubblegum thing. So before we get on to the all-new Live Birds. <laughs> like the all-new Popeye show that was about seven years old when when it started, when the prints were manky and washed out and scratched <laughs> to death. And then the year after I'd seen it for the first time, it came back and it was the same episode. Like, Why are you calling this the all-new Popeye show? You've made a rod for your own backs. For that to really work, you have to show it once and then put it away. Never show it again. <laughs> well, we will find out what's all new because there are certainly some liberties taken with regard to. If you think the Doctor timeline was bad, 
wait till you get to the land of birds. But anyway, a couple of your feedback notes, first of all. G. Baker writes, absolutely fabulous, mainly when they brought it back after 1995 for Series 4 in 2001. Now, I'm going to admit something here. I did watch a handful of episodes of Absolutely Fabulous in its first year. I have not seen it since. Yeah, never caught on with me. I've, I've, I really, I could not say. Full of, you know, jokes, people laughing. So I really couldn't say how well it stood up in 2001. I mean, for what it's worth, my memory of those that I know watched in 2001, they were not disappointed. I think that they were perfectly happy with it. Again, we're getting into that area there is six years. Is that perhaps about the right length of time if you are going to bring something back? Because that wasn't... I don't think that was really meant to be a revival as such. It wasn't going to be... It's been all these years and now we're going to finally catch up with them and find out what they've been doing. It was more... We're going to continue. We're going to carry on. Make more absolutely fabulous. So, yeah. Sorry, G. I really couldn't comment to any great degree. But if anybody listening has got any thoughts about absolutely fabulous and how well it stood up when it came back... Let us know. Tweet us at the sitcom club. Simon Dunn asks, in sickness and in health, also mentioned by Lapscat as well on Twitter. Now, you've got a 10-year gap if we're only going by BBC dates. Last episode of Till Death is Depart, 75, 1985, in sickness and in health. Very much a revival, very much catch up, find out what they're doing. The reason I said if we're only going by BBC dates is because it did actually have a series on ATV in 1981, which was Warren Mitchell, Dandy Nichols, and Patricia Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about through the keyhole. <laughs> Is that a discussion for another time? No, let, 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 let's address that just now. Does anybody out there have a copy of... Patricia I don't want Hayes. to copy. I couldn't watch it. Be too oh, you've got to see it. No, if somebody comes up with it, you've got to see it. No. I have a very low embarrassment threshold. Right, we need to explain what this it's is. It's just the original format of Through the Keyhole. It was on TVAM, and Lloyd Grossman did not know whose house he was looking at, and it was him who had to guess where he was. And they would have the celebrity there in the studio chuckling along as Lloyd was nasty about their decor. And... Patricia Hayes was not happy and said she would never have agreed to it if she'd known he was American. <laughs> the only thing is, is that my memory had been that the celebrities themselves did not know that the houses were going to be looked through. So it's like, well, thanks for coming to the studio. What you don't know is we've let somebody into your house while you're busy here. <laughs> Which would then raise the question, why was Patricia Hayes the only one who got angry? You'd think every single one would be trying to deck Nick Owen. <laughs> well, if you want to see an example of this format... It's a bit like my memory of Slinger's Day. I kind of wish that oh, my I, oh, yes, I know. I mean, was, I... Was, the, was the situation that had been... Your memory of Slinger's Day is that Brucey goes into business for himself, and by the end of the series, he's pretty much addressing the audience for half of it, yes. and just ad-libbing and make it up as he goes along, and all the other actors are just his pawns. <laughs> and he's basically turned it into the generation game. It's but like when they do a true, play at still the end. Running. <laughs> hey, that could be the next revival. Don't rule it out. Could happen. 
Now, if you want to see an example of early through the keyhole, I think Captain Sensibles through the keyhole from TVM is on YouTube and it's in exactly the style that Ocho is describing there. But if anybody has a copy of Patricia Hayes' appearance on through the keyhole, TVM, circa 1983, please let us know. If you want, you can tweet it directly to myself and I'll keep it quiet from Ocho and then I will coax him out of his low embarrassment <laughs> threshold shell and I will make I sure he watches it I watched an episode of Bob Says Opportunity Knocks earlier and I muted the impressionist because I, <laughs> I knew I didn't even give her a chance. <laughs> I didn't even wait to find out if any of her impressions were any good because the chance that the chance that she might not be good was too much for my nervous system. Hang on a second. It wasn't Deborah Stevenson, was it? No. Was it not? Because she did appear on Op Knox. I think she was about 14. And she was doing impressions on it there. But it wasn't herself, no? No. Ah, okay. Oh, actually, even when you said she there, I was hoping that actually you were going to say it was a man because then I was going to say... Well, no, I did, I did catch a very brief glimpse of her towards the end and she was doing a Paul Daniels impression. But I got to the mute button in time. <laughs> well, I was hoping because you were going to say... Even, I'm not even going to give points for boldness. I just... If there's just that chance... Like... The thing that people say about, oh, comedy songs are rubbish, it's not true, but a bad comedy song sucks the air out of the room in the way that a bad sketch doesn't. And the same with an impressionist. An impressionist who's just not good enough is cringe-making in a way that a a poor stand-up comedian wouldn't be. And she might have been fantastic. I just wasn't willing to take that risk. And that's why I'm not going to say what her name was. I was hoping that you were going to say at one point, she said, here, guess who this is? Ooh, Betty, I've shit myself. I mean, if they don't do Frank Spencer, then it's not worth them turning up. Well, this is the late 80s, by which point everybody, and I mean everybody, I don't mean just mean impressionists, everybody thinks they can do Scylla. And that was always a thing on game shows. When it's like, oh, and it says here that you do an impression of Scylla Black. Oh, God, get to the remote, quick! I'm going to be careful how I tell this story because I don't want to actually reveal the details about the the person involved. I had a passing acquaintance with this chap who is quite a good entertainer. He was doing local venues. I used to live in a seaside town, so he was doing the local venue and he was just playing to the, the local shearings, coaches, crowd and so on during the summer. And it was a nice enough act that he had for what it was worth. I mean, he was making everybody laugh in the auditorium. And then one week he said to us, I'm going, I'm going to be careful how I say this, I'm going on show X, we'll call it. And he was going to do his, his full on act. And fingers crossed that this was going to work out for him. And it was a talent show, you're supposed to vote for your favourites and so on. So we found out when he was going to be on the show. And... We were making up posters for his appearance at this venue that we were involved in the promotion of. And we plastered his name all over the posters and then said, star of TV's show title. So we were just basically assuming that he was going to walk it, that he was going to go in there and he was going to blow the roof off the place. And by the time he came to make our appearance, everybody in the country would know his name. So we thought, okay, well, we're in here. He goes on the show. One of his impressions is of the Phantom of the Opera and then reveals himself to be Frank Spencer. So it was supposed to be, you know, a clever little 
twist, Michael Crawford. One of the panelists on the show was Bobby Crush, and he basically explained that he thought that the mid-1990s were a little bit too late to be doing Frank Spencer impersonations. And when I finally got to speak to this guy sometime after this, I said, uh, I didn't know because I hadn't seen the show. I hadn't gone out yet. I said, um, how did your appearance go? And he said, uh, no. He didn't say badly, he just said, no. Bobby Crush didn't get it. And I've got a funny feeling that he may have related that story several times in the past 20 years. <laughs> and any time, I mean, and it's not very often that you see Bobby Crush turn up on the TV these days, but any time that he ever does, I suspect that this guy will probably be either physically sick or be searching for the nearest heavy object. So I'm disappointed to hear that your impressions didn't do Frank Spencer, but fingers crossed with an exception. He might have. Like I said, I just muted it. So what are our thoughts then on... I can't obviously talk about it at length because we haven't seen it recently, but just to respond. What are our thoughts then on In Sickness and In Health? It was all right. I can't really get more. I watched it at the time, but I was never a big fan of the character. I was certainly... Sorry, I just had to readjust there because my brain is still full of talent shows and game shows. <laughs> Did you think I'm not really ready in... to talk about sitcoms anymore. Did you think that we'd slipped into talent show club? I don't mind. <laughs> one one week we'll do that. My memories of In Sickness and Health were that it was pretty successful as far as revivals go, and I think it was on for about five years. And I mean, partly by the passing of Dandy Nichols after series one, they had to adapt and change and bring in new people and so on. But they weren't, as far as I could tell, they weren't trying to relive the glory years and do Till Death Is Depart light. Hadn't there been a big change in the personal relationship between Warren Mitchell and Dandy Nichols as well? As I understand it, I think that by the time they got to the end of Till Death is Depart, I don't think that they were on the best of terms. But I don't think that was necessarily still the case by the time they got to Isle of ATV or In Sickness and In Health. My understanding was by the time of In Sickness and In Health, they'd become quite protective of each other, and which I think will have a, an effect on the on-screen chemistry but i just don't have any particularly strong feelings but i watched it at the time so it must have done something right and it's not again it's not one of these one series wonders it was on for a long time and it didn't try to become to deficit to part light it adapted and it became ultimately became a show in its own right and it was alf now relating to the people around him because of course to deficit to part principally it was about the social, political issues of the day, whereas In Sickness and Health was more about Alf and the fact that he was getting on in years and how he related to the people around him and how they treated him. So it became a bit more actually about the central character. It became more about Alf Garnet, the person. But yes, certainly as far as revivals go, I would say that that would be up there with the most successful which is not necessarily but the, the thing case is, when it comes to... you don't have quite the same huge gaps. Well, it's a fairly that you lengthy have with one. The ones that... we're dealing with now, because we're going to count ATVs till death as existing, if only terms of and how much warming up it takes people to do to get back into their character, to get back into the swing of things. So yeah, if you've got even ATV aside, if you've got a 10-year gap, that's one thing. If you've got an 18-year gap, that's quite a bridge to cross. Speaking of which, the liveaboards. Now, 
I did say to yourself, Ocho, make sure you see the first two episodes, not just the first one. How did that go for you? Meh. Which was my feelings at the time. I watched it when it first went out. I just remember everybody going, that that didn't work, did it? And we have similar problems, which is, right, let's catch up with each other and then complain about our lives. Now, that's a bit more of a Carla Lane thing. Oh, where did my life go? But again, these are characters who have not been previously set up for that kind of where did my life go. So I imagine that was jarring for people who fondly remembered the original. Well, again, this is this seems to be a theme that's running through all these shows. The Life of Birds, I've seen episodes of Life of Birds within the last couple of years on Gold, and they're not laugh every ten seconds. It's not absolutely rapid-fire gags. I mean, there are dramatic moments in the episodes as a rule, but they are the kind of situations that you expect them to be in. You know, they're the two young ladies and they're discussing, for example, their boyfriends or their work or whatever it may be or the relations with the, the families and so on. But there's nothing too heavy so to speak. It's all nice and light-hearted and again, like we're talking about the Doctor series, it's all good fun. It's all feel-good. And yeah, when you get to New Life Upwards, it's really grim. The reason, Ocho, that I said make sure you watch the first two episodes is because I didn't want your last impression of it to be the end of episode one. <laughs> that is quite a bold way of ending the first episode of a sitcom. Yeah, it's, like I say, it's the end of episode one, so it's not really a spoiler, but we've got a storyline involving Polly James' character and her son, who is in some difficulties, uh, taking a wrong turn and ended up in, I think it's Young Offenders Institution. And yeah, if all the publicity that you've seen beforehand is, look everybody, way it's the live reports are coming back, brilliant, remember that show from the 70s when it was all fun and laughs and it was in colour and brilliant way and at the end of it I mean it's like the last scene in an episode of Coronation Street or EastEnders uh, it really it's not at all what you'd be expecting it's certainly not what you would have been expecting half an hour previous one of the problems I had with this and I, th I think it was a problem that started in bread is this weird sort of pathos, undercutting the pathos, introducing the pathos, undercutting the pathos. And it starts to weather vein. So it's like, hey, it's not all a downer, but remember, this is actually a little bit more serious than a normal comedy. But uh, it's a bit of fun anyway, but let's not forget. It's like, no, commit. Commit. If, you, if you're going to puncture seriousness, do it. But then I got the feeling that when it did go for seriousness, there was a little bit of that finger-wagging, ah, it's not all just laughs. But we like a laugh, but it's not all just laugh, but I, I, I ended up a bit seasick. I think you might have the same opinion on This Is Myself, Ocho. I'm not really a fan of 90s culture, generally. I find the 90s a bit of a... It was all a, right until Park Life came out. I find the 90s a bit of a nothing decade. The other decades... I went to see Blur Live and came out with a friend and was like, we better come back when they've stopped being quite so in with the in crowd. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Britpop. It's horrible. I just, yeah, I mean, that whole... Because that was the beginning of everything's... Oh, come on, everything's just as good as the Golden Age. This is the Golden Age. 
let's regurgitate the tropes without any of the originality of content. Where did my libido go? <laughs> See, Paul Who would want to problem. listen to this, Mooncat? This particular podcast is our own personal sitcom club at the top. <laughs> no, but it'll be, it'll be, it'll be. I'm so, it'll be... so old, and oh, and people want to hear me talking about how I'm so old. Is that really interesting? <laughs> Odds, cufflinks. It's just this thing now that I keep going on message boards. We go, oh my god, 1993 was 20 years ago. Of course, it was 20 years ago. It's 2013. That's just mathematics. But hey, that, that way you can make the conversation all about you. Because that's when people go, oh God, I feel so old. It's so that they can get the personal pronoun in there when actually there's, everybody should be talking about something interesting. <laughs> nice bit of CGI on the opening titles of the Liver Birds, though, with the birds jumping off the Royal Liver Building. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it made that sound like it's Polly Jim's. <laughs> No, it's used commit suicide at the opening of every episode. <laughs> I mean, those... How grim is this plot going to get? <laughs> I mean, the sculptures, for those of you who don't want to watch it, the so sculptures only one series. the actual birds, the actual misrepresented cormorants that are liver birds on top of the Royal Liver Building fly away with the wonders of CGI and they bring back little Scylla and her dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, we've got to explain another reference Right, go on then Scylla Black tried to get a cartoon show off the ground And there is a pilot out there And I think it's on YouTube And it involves little Scylla and her dog Voiced by John Peel Meeting a liver bird Voiced by Gareth Hunt Yes My recollection is he's doing a vague kind of Derek Geiler impression Written by Vince Powell Ah, well, there you go Have we finished with the liver birds now? I think we've all finished with the live part tonight. <laughs> okay, I've got a terrible confession to make. I've never seen the film or the play Shirley Valentine. Yet I know just enough about it that it makes me wonder if some of that might be in new live birds. Like I've said, and this is a theory I'm going to pursue in the next segment, that whole thing of Doctor at the Top, Surgical Spirit, live birds for Shirley Valentine. Maybe, maybe I'm not able to take this theory any farther but I just wanted to put that out there and in our next one, The Legacy of Reginald Perrin I'm going to say that Waiting for God kind of bubbles up a little bit in this Now did you actually watch the whole series of this Mooncat? I have not seen all of Reginald Perrin yet I will just say that Lapscat has tweeted as The Legacy of Reggie Perrin was as misguided an idea as those two 80s Pink Panther films they made after Peter Sellers died Ironically enough, one of those actually featured Leonard Roster in a scene cut out of The Trail of the Pink Panther. Now, cards on the table. <clears throat> cards. Cards, yes. I am not against revivals, per se. I'm not against, and frequently, well, like, still open all hours, which we're practically sponsored by at this point. And people go, oh, they couldn't, no, 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 it'll, it won't work because Ronnie's, Ronnie's gone. And it was all about him. No, David Jason is good enough as a comic actor. He's got the chops. I'm not necessarily one of those people. I'm glad the Beatles got back together. <laughs> that was fine as a way of capping a retrospective project. So I'm not really into 
too much treating certain shows, certain bands, certain things as holy writ. Bring it back and see what it looks like. I love the fact that the last goon show of all exists because you've got Neddy Seagoon making references to the Grateful Dead. I like that idea. I liked when they did those remounts of the scripts with Jeffrey Holland and Andrew Seacombe and was it John Glover? It had its own problems. I think they they probably shouldn't have just had three people for the three cast members. I think they would have been better off getting maybe even a different actor for every voice. But it was an interesting project. These are radio scripts that we can't hear because... So let's remount them and enjoy them as radio. And again, Blue Bottle making references to Badly Drawn Boy. Fine, I like that. Just bring things back and have a look at how they bend the reflection of the present. Just doesn't necessarily work every time. And most of the time it doesn't, but I don't think it's because these things are too sacred. I think the idea of a Reginald Perrin show without Leonard Rossiter is not a stupid idea. But it's very difficult to get right, and I don't think they did. To address Lapscat's point... Yeah, sorry, that's not, the, that's not the, necessarily the point he was making. Well, to address Lapscat's... I just use that as a springboard, because it's just the idea in itself is dicey, but not blasphemy. To address Lapscat's point... The problem with those films, The Trail of the Pink Panther and Curse of the Pink Panther, is that the first one, I mean, the first one is horrible because they are attempting through a series of scenes that were cut out of previous films. So scenes that didn't make the grade initially, they are attempting to basically make a new Peter Sellers film when Peter Sellers is no longer around. And in the case of The Curse of the Pink Panther... I think Ted Wass does the best job that he possibly could, but they're asking him effectively to fill Peter Sellers' shoes. Now, thankfully, in the legacy of Reginald Perrin, first of all, they haven't got some horrific idea to try and get Leonard Roster in the show by means of either archive material or, God forbid, just doing a Jack Douglas and have have him shot from the back or something like that and have somebody impersonating them, which would be just horrible. And also, they're not trying to create a new Reginald Perrin figure. So they respect the fact that Leonard Roster is no longer there and they make the best of what they have in terms of the existing cast doing what they can. Out of the three that we saw, this one I actually liked the most and I've seen the first two episodes ahead of our conversation today and I am interested to see the others. Now I don't know how well it's going to go but David Knobb's writing as far as I can see from the first couple of shows is still as sharp as ever and yes it's a very very difficult situation and the chances were that it was never really going to be as big a success but what the hell, why ever not what did you think Osho, what did you think of Richard Pound. Well, here's the problem. Without Reggie, you're left with characters who are initially designed to be reacted to by Reggie. They're not identification figures. They're not even particularly fully thought out figures. Not through anything David Nobbs did wrong. They're kind of pantomime-ish. That's fine. That's what they're there for. Part of the whole thing with the catchphrases initially is the annoying repetition. This is the world that Reggie is trapped in, where everybody comes on and says their piece. It's not 
thought. It's just noise. And the audience laugh at them like catchphrases, but they do kind of have a point. And this is a series without the identification figure and all of the supporting cast are now the cast. And there's just not enough there to build on. And what I think would have made this work is to pare things down a bit because everybody almost seems to get equal time, which I imagine was possibly one of the ways you managed to get nearly everybody back. Trevor Adams doesn't return as Tony Webster because they couldn't find him and he'd retired from acting anyway. But with everybody getting equal weight... And everybody being treated like a sympathetic identification figure, it just starts to fall down. And I think this should have focused on Jimmy. Now, I know there'd already been a spiritual successor with Fairly Secret Army, Jeffrey Palmer. But I think Jimmy seems to be the one who, well, I mean, Jeffrey Palmer's such a warhorse of television comedy. So we know he's got the chops, not seeing anything against the others, but there's a little bit more to work with with Jimmy. And there are indications later on that we, we do explore Jimmy's state of mind and it seems to bear the most fruit. So I think this needed to build it around him a bit more. And another problem, of course, is the central conceit is eerily reminiscent of a 1951 film called Laughter in Paradise, which was remade as, I think it was called Some Will, Some Want. Was that circa 1969? Mooncat, you, you probably know more about this because it's... More your era. The one that's in my mind is the one with Michael Horden. I do remember a scene with Michael Horden, and I think it's, it's Arthur Lowe's the desk sergeant, and I think Stephen Lewis is also there with him, and Michael Horden saying, I need to go to prison. This is his... Yeah, Michael Horden playing a role that was played by Alistair Sim in the original. And he has to go Wilfred Bramble and Dennis Price, James Robertson, Justice... I think this is available on DVD from Network and I might have to invest in a copy. So it doesn't help that some of the audience will have seen the idea played out already. And Frank Thornton's in it, of course he is. <laughs> We're going to come back to Frank Thornton shortly, by the way. So that was that was the problem I had with it, is you have a lot of characters who are almost just a catchphrase and are also meant to be annoying they're still only just a catchphrase, but they're also now meant to be lovable, and the identification is spread too thin. I did find that there was too much in terms of repetition of the catchphrases. For example, CJ's I Didn't Get Where I Am, mangling the analogies, Jeffrey Palmer cock up on the blank front and so on, a hell of a lot of them all compressed into a single episode. Maybe it could do with, as you say, being pared down, maybe it could do with focusing on individual characters for a time in each episode, rather than they're all being together at the same time. I still think that leaves us with the problem of characters who are not meant to bear much weight are now being squashed under the plot. It also leaves Pauline Yates as Reggie's widow in a weird position, because she wasn't weird and didn't have a catchphrase. And now she's stuck sharing every scene with these catchphrase characters. She ends up in a strange place. That I can make an exception for, because I think if you were actually married to Reggie Perrin, I think well, he'd have that kind of effect on you. don't go in-universe on me, man. No, I think, I think he would have that kind of effect on you. If you've, if you've put up with him all these years. No, she hasn't. Got, that's the problem. She's still the voice of sanity. And she's reacting a little bit to every character 
And again, she she's carrying more than she should. So I think it's just it it just became unbalanced. And as you haven't seen the end of it, I can't complain about the ending either. But there you go. I don't mind. I don't mind. Although, is it going to be too much of a spoiler for people who may want to rush off and immediately watch it straight after this podcast? Okay, just take your earphones out or turn off for a few I'm going to hear it anyway. I'm, gonna... <laughs> I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the listeners. You, you can take care of yourself. Okay, spoiler coming. Come back in 10 seconds time, starting now. They don't get the money so that there's an opening for a second series. Do you know, I sort of guessed that was going to happen anyway. So we're back, but that bugged me too. Doctor at the Top and, and Legacy of Reginald Perrin were close to working. They just kind of collapsed under expectations and with Doctor at the Top trying to be too different and with Legacy of Reginald Perrin not being different enough. I think we have spoken in previous shows about... Actually, I tell you another thing. Just all the drooling of uh, Patricia Hodge. Okay, I know they were trying to make it funny, but it just didn't work. It was just everybody talking about how flaming gorgeous Patricia Hodge is. Yeah, but they're oversexed men, aren't they? Ugh. But yeah, and every everybody's sex again. We we started getting this thing of all oh, my flagging libido. Oh, it's there actually. Life in the old dog yet. Every, the simple fact every, of the yeah, matter but more is that, that lots of characters were still doing this thing of, oh, yeah, I still enjoy it. Okay, right, one of you, one of you, you can do that. One of the couples in this can do that. But it just seemed to be, oh, look, they see, they're, they're enjoying themselves. And so are they. And so are they. There isn't really a point to make. There aren't three significantly different cases here. It just seems to be life in the old dog yet. Again and again. As far as Paul Collier is concerned... Was Viagra available in 1991? Who's Paul Collier? The third Doctor. Oh, we're going back to Doctor Up the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because well, we... Doctor Up the what? Um, because we keep on talking about his flagging libido. And so, surely, he was in need of a prescription. I don't want Viagra jokes. Are they, what, is that what they're going to bring? Are they going to bring back something from the 90s now? With Viagra jokes? Did they bring back anything? They must have brought back something from the 90s. Oh, that's a good question. Ooh, um, something from the 90s. Oh, well, it's coming. Birds of Feather. Oh, my flagging libido again. <laughs> Is Dorian going to be in it? Yes, oh. they're all going to be in it. It's a bit like when they brought back <laughs> Last of the Manor Born to the Manor Born, which wasn't too bad. wasn't fantastic. Well, it was a one-off. It benefited from the fact that there was only going to be one episode. Yeah. And it also benefited from the fact that something in it had become a bit more topical, with one of the characters being a Polish immigrant. But there was also a certain tendency of, oh no, I've got bird flu in my iPod. <laughs> eh? And of course, whenever you do something like that, whenever you bring something back, or you have anybody over the age of 50 mention something faintly modern... The audience howls like they couldn't have seen it coming. I tell you, if Granville mentions twerking... Oh, God, no. I am flinging my TV into the Pacific. Oh, no, I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen. Even though, actually, David Jason saying twerking in the accent would be moderately amusing. It's still, it's the <laughs> principle of the thing. I did actually catch earlier on the 1990 Christmas special of Last of Summer Wine. 
And there's one line in there from Clegg about Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it doesn't get a huge laugh. And I like to think that the audience... 80% of them were just sat there thinking, who the hell's that? I just contradicted myself because I said the thing about how I liked hearing the goons mention the Grateful Dead. I don't know what the difference is. I think possibly it's the, here you can see it coming a mile off, coming a mile off. It's the present day reference. Whereas if it just drops in and speeds off, it's all right. If if they mention something like Nettie Seagun mentioning the Grateful Dead, it's like, right, yeah, right just mention a band who's famous in 1972. Okay, it's that, wait for it, wait for it, wink, 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 wink. Or maybe I'm just a massive hypocrite, and it's all right if Harry Seacombe does it. Okay, if you think that Ocho is massive hypocrite, tweet yes. If you think he isn't, tweet no. We will give you the Twitter. results of the poll oh, oh, oh. in the you next... Twitter, oh, yeah, everybody. yes, yes. Well, okay, right, things that they might mention and still open all hours. Vine. Twitter, Facebook... They won't mention MySpace because that's more of a sort of Alan Partridge reference where it's a sort of knowing. In sitcoms, they've, if they're going to make references to topical things, they can't be too topical unless it's actually like a live weekly satirical show. This is like, have I got news for you? But otherwise, if in terms of sitcoms and also because of the, the lag and the recording time and the editing time and so on, if they're going to mention modern popular culture, it has to be something which they know that the audience is going to get, and so it's likely to be something which is already slightly dated. They're not likely to do a lot of gags about, I don't know, what's what's the latest in thing right now? Well, like twerking. I mean, they're probably not going to mention that because a large part of the audience might not know what that is yet, and they're only going to start knowing what it is when... Michael McIntyre starts dropping it into his act and so on. So, I don't know. We're going to create that Roy Clark bingo card anyway, so maybe we'll, on the reverse side we'll have the modern-day references selection. couple of last responses on Twitter. Lapscat again says, People who clamour for a Faulty Towers revival should remember that Manuel is now 80 and Cleese can't write jokes anymore. <laughs> also, he asks, does... You see, you almost had me there, Manuel at 80 curious but i'm not i'm you see i'm not excited for the python reunion so oh, we, we, yeah we covered that we covered yeah. that last time yeah he also asked does steptoe qualify should as hell grace and favor redefine television sitcom forever <laughs> 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 now we have seen the odd episode of are you being served again as it's known in the states and that at least got two What's this wee business you've seen grace and favor haven't you I think I might have seen episode one at the time. It's enough. <laughs> I just remember there being a lot of cock jokes because they're all running around in the farm. I mean, at least I'd rather if they were going to restage Are You Being Served, I'd rather they did put them into a slightly different situation than the idea that they are still a Grace Brothers after all that time. That would be great. Everything's now- faded and grim and there aren't enough light bulbs and this. No toilet. <laughs> Nobody wants to acknowledge that Mr. Grace is dead. Just, it's just it's too much of them to take in, so they still refer to him in the present tense. And they're clearly massively in the red, and it's only a matter of time for the bulldozers come in. But they're just, with their steely determination, they're just getting through each and every day. And that'd be horrible. Please, nobody write that fan fiction. Well, let's... Nobody. Did we mention this previously? 
the worst idea for a revival ever that may have actually been planned. Did we mention that? Can you bring up the news story? So we get this quote exactly right. Whilst I'm looking this up, could you answer Lapscat's question? What about Steptoe? The gap, I believe, is... Is it five years? Last series of Steptoe? Four or five years? I don't know, but there's no massive retooling. It's a little bit like the Get Between series of Open All Hours. It's probably been repeated a little bit as well. For a certain section of the audience, five years is not that long ago. So it's just it's, you just have to file it under interesting cases. For some reason, Steptoe and Open All Hours, five years is just a gap between series. For the likely lads, it's a lifetime. The big change, of course, as far as Steptoe is concerned, is the transition to colour and being able to reintroduce the characters effectively because, I mean, we're too young to been through it, but when you look at old listings, old newspaper articles and so on, there's a really strong clamouring amongst the audience, amongst critics and so on for colour versions of shows. More so even now than there are people saying, I'd like to see HD versions of shows. You do quite often see in the critics' columns, people saying, why can we not see a colour version of this? And I suspect also that the broadcasters themselves, from 69 onwards, didn't really want to show a lot of black and white stuff. They didn't really want to repeat a lot of black and white stuff, that that they hadn't already wiped. Controversial. But, yeah, because we're in this brave new world of colour and people are paying their colour licence, which is considerably more expensive than a black and white licence, and so therefore they want to get value for money. So... Yeah, but I do actually, funnily enough, I do slightly prefer the latter Steptoes to the original ones. And I might Is be... that because they're a bit more comedy rather than kitchen sink? No, I don't know. Um, I suspect that I might be a little bit prejudiced kitchen because sink. I... I think the Steptoes have a kitchen. <laughs> well, they do, but you can barely well, see it. There wasn't really the a mo- school of drama called the Outside Lav School. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I grew up watching the colour Steptoes, so I guess I'm a little bit prejudiced because they're the ones that I remember, they're the ones that I associate with the show itself. And then I've seen the black and white ones more recently, especially as the Appreciation Society started to discover episodes that they thought had previously been lost. But yeah, I think that the the colour episodes, I think they've just got a slight edge. But I think, yeah, you're right, the... The original 60s ones has got a slightly harsher edge to them, a little bit more dramatic. And yeah, I probably prefer the 70s ones for that reason, because they are a bit more ha-ha funny. Have you got the quote up then? I have indeed. This is from The Guardian, dated January 11th, 1985, headed BBC Claims Christmas Ratings Victory. And in this article, I've got quotes from Michael Grade talking about the ratings were with ITV. ITV had a particularly good year that year. They had the premiere of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and so they were also claiming victory. But interestingly enough, towards the end of the article, it states that the highest rated show over the Christmas period was a repeat. It was an episode of Porridge shown on the 27th of December which received 19.36 million viewers, and it was a repeat of the 1975 Christmas special, No Way Out. And right at the foot of the article, 
It says, the success of the Christmas repeat of the Porridge episode coincided with talks about a possible new series. We have discussed a new series with Ronnie Barker, said Mr. Grid. Now, I think there's a certain ambiguity there. <laughs> Is it we have discussed Ronnie Barker making a new series with the BBC because Ronnie Barker is obviously still very popular. Or did he really want a new series of Porridge? Oh, let me go on the record. Say, I am glad that Going Straight exists. I like the fact that Fletch gets out and we see him. We see him as a free man. And by the end, we know that he's going to be okay. Oh, oh. <laughs> No, 1980s porridge. Well, okay, for a start, if they bring back porridge, then people are going to expect not just Ronnie Barker, but they're going to expect to see his fellow inmates. So not only have we got to come up with an excuse as to why Fletch, after everything that he said and how he absolutely swore that he wasn't going to go back to his old ways, has, and has found himself back inside. Also, we've got to find a reason why Bunny has got to go back inside and McLaren's going to be back inside. He was still there in the first episode of Going Straight. He was the only member of their group who was still there. We've got to put Lukewarm back in. Blanco? Does Blanco reoffend? Well, Luke Warm ends up back in. Well, his, anyway, his case we is coming up. We don't know that he's going to go back in, but we know he's possibly slipped back into his old ways. Is Blanco going to reoffend? <laughs> That'd be horrible. I, th I think David Jason's probably put himself slightly out of the price range. By yeah. Him. Okay. Who else have we got in the group? Horrible Lives. Horrible Lives is going to go back in. Are we still going to have all the same prison officers? For example, Mr. Bakai. In the first episode of Going Straight, he was on his way down south for a job interview because he was going to be pensioned off. So why is he there then? The, the whole th yeah, it, it, it's grim. Because, I mean, if we followed the exposition in the first episodes of Doctor at the Top and Life of Birds was something, what kind of length of description are we going to have to justify all of them being back in the cell? Unless it's... It's just that thing of Fletcher, you have thrown your life away. You are a shell of a man. The only reasonable reaction to this situation is just to sit on your bunk all day and cry. But the thing is, hang on, wasn't he supposed to be early 40s during porridge? So now he's going to be early to mid 50s. Do you know what? I'm going to have a stab at this. And it wouldn't have worked, but I'm going to have a stab at it anyway. Each episode begins with Fletcher free sat in his living room, and either he's talking to, say, his young nephew, or he's talking to his buddy, or whatever it is, or he's just nodding off and he's falling asleep. Either way, the story is always a flashback. He's saying, ah. oh, I remember this one time, and then off they go. See, now this is the thing. At the beginning of Going Straight, he has a conversation with McLaren, and we established that everybody is out by now themselves. Oh, so this is going to fill in the gap exactly, between yeah, because Lenny's the end release and Fletch's release. So this is going to be Porridge, The Lost Years. Mr. Pekai says to him at the end of the final Porridge episode that he's thinking of putting in a new young inmate with him for exactly the same reason that he wants him to have the same effect as he did on Godburst. He wants to show him the ropes and show him the his ways and so on. And Fletch is quite agreeable. 
to that idea. So, yeah, we could have about a year's worth of stories. Everybody's still there, so we can just put them all back in again. Now, you've sold me on the idea. Not that I think it would work, because porridge is of such high quality, I'm not sure you could really get that back. But you haven't made it sound like the most joyless concept ever spawned from human mind. Well, it's better than the idea that we had the other day. Well, I mean, how many shows over the years have found themselves with an Australian spin-off? So, in our version, <laughs> Fletcher goes down under to start a new life, and would you know it, oh, bloody hell. Just mentioning uh, revivals that wouldn't have worked, I need to mention here that the other day I knew I had to watch a bunch of revivals, and I half woke up, well, half, my brain was probably about seven-eighths still asleep. I should think, what What have I got to watch again? Doctor at the Top, Reginald Perrin, and the 1996 series of Dad's Army. That's it. I, I could see the opening titles in my head. They were white and red rather than green. So <laughs> That's not a good idea, got... though, is it? Especially, of course, I mean, if you're, what, 20 years later, we've established in episode one of Dad's Army that most of the characters are still in Warmington as of 1968. Right, I'm gonna hang hang on a second because I'll I'll throw you a lifeline here. Remember that it's 1996, and when was the last Dead's Army? Am I right? Well, no, the last Dead's Army was 77. But am I right in thinking that in 1996 the first episode of Dad's Army was yet to be rediscovered? So nobody's going to remember that opening to the first episode. We completely forgot to mention the continuity snarl up of the Liverbirds. Ah, yes, of course. I did make reference to it earlier on. Because I do recall people talking about it at the time. So clearly, people had clear enough memories of the show that even in those days when you didn't buy an entire series on DVD with a click of a mouse, still enough people remembered. And I think that actually did turn some people against it. Do you want to tell everybody what it is? I can't actually remember what it is. And it was something to do with somebody's family gets transplanted over to somebody else. So Beryl left the Liverbirds and was replaced with... Carol Boswell. Played by Elizabeth Estenson. And with her comes her supporting cast, her mother and her brother, who clearly make a big impact because it's felt necessary to have them in the revival. And yet somehow, Carol's mother and brother have now become Beryl's mother and brother. And my recollection was people was going, hang on a minute, what? This makes no sense. But enough people remembered that it, that it irritated them. And what irritated them more was that later on, when Elizabeth Essenson appeared in the new Live Birds, she was then replaced by Georgina Hale. <laughs> now you're being silly. <laughs> Teabag reference, everyone. You knew there was going to be one. And it wouldn't have been impossible to get Michael Angelis as Lucian in there. You just have him maybe, you know, because he, he was being the removal guy, wasn't he? So you just have him moving Beryl's stuff and have Nerys Hughes' character going, Oh, hello, I haven't seen you in years. Oh, well, keep in touch. And in fact, why don't you pop in every episode? And also, could you help Beryl's son that you've never met because he's a bit well, of a Well, no, yeah, again, and... I just thought, oh, Beryl, this, you, you, don't, you don't know Lucian. And then, you know, just somewhere in the conversation, you know what, you should talk to my son. I think he'd benefit from meeting you. 
Or is that too easier complicated? Just, is it easier just to... <laughs> easier just to do it the way they did it, isn't it? Just, but there, yeah, but just I remember people talking about it at the time. And sitcom fans are not like genre television fans. They're not like fantasy fans. It takes a lot to annoy them in a continuity snarl up. And yet that was sufficient to set them off. Well, it is quite a leap. I mean, I think that you can get away with things like, for example... Like I said about Doctor at the Top and how annoyed I was that they didn't include their Antipodean antics as part of their timeline. But that kind of thing people will overlook. But when you actually then shift an entire family unit from one person to another, then yeah, that's perhaps going too far. I forgot to mention earlier on when I was complaining about Dick Stuart Clark having been down under in 1979 and now in 1991 he has a family and his daughter is going off to university and so on. Chloe and I forgot Ed. to mention that is Exactly, yes, Kachansky, Mark II from Red Dwarf. And the whole time I was watching I was thinking, I've seen her on something before. Can't place her. There's only one I saw a name that I could remember. Where I'd seen him before. A couple of final revivals. Just before we began our conversation, you and I, we watched Butterflies 2000, which is what it should have been called. <laughs> Unfortunately, it wasn't. It was just called Butterflies. But Oh, my flagging libido. I know that was kind of in the original, but having sat through all those revivals, and then you go, oh, let's just watch one more thing, and, and just being hit with it again. But you say this as if this was Paul Collier's catchphrase, and maybe if it had been, Dot at the Top would have been a massive hit. If he just walks into a room and goes, oh, me flagging libido. <laughs> I mean, talk about hope I die before I get old. These revivals make me dread next February, to be honest. The point is, we haven't even seen the natural next step. We're talking about revivals of 1970s shows coming back in the 1990s. So surely, the next couple of years or so, we should be getting the second revivals of all of these shows. The revivals of the revivals. The all-new Life of Birds. Doctor at the Bottom. <laughs> Doctor on the Dole. So, Butterflies 2000, your thoughts? There's not much you can say about a 12-minute children need special. I didn't enjoy it, but that could well be something to do with all the stuff I'd watched the previous few days. I am going to spoil the ending of this. So, if you don't want to know how Butterflies 2000 ends, just look it up. It's only 12 and a half minutes long. Type in Butterflies Children Need into YouTube, you'll find it. At the end, you've got Wendy Craig, Bruce Montague, chatting away on the park bench, and himself says, does he actually say we never did sleep together? He said we he never got to bed. That's right, yeah. And then done it on every Rhea other says, surface. Rhea says, no. No, we didn't. So there's no ambiguity about it. That's it. Doesn't he go, we never got to bed, didn't we? <laughs> I can't remember anymore. <laughs> it would have been great if at the end she'd gone, God, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I had the, an alternative ending in mind for this. You could keep everything that's in it as it is. He says, we never did go to bed, did we? And she says, no, no, we didn't. And then she says... Still, no time like the present, is there? Hey! And then you play Benny Hill Yakti Sax music and just speed it all up and they just get down to it right there and then in the park. Scare all the birds away. Now, some people may think that, that was inappropriate for pre-watershed viewing. But it's for charity, for Christ's sake. So, you know, can't complain about it. Did we say we weren't going to spoil the ending? 
<laughs> I've got a feeling I might just have done that, but yeah. Never mind. Anyway, the last revival I was going to mention is one which didn't happen, but everything but the filming of it took place. Back on the buses. 1990. <laughs> no! Oh, yes. I'm quoting here from the... Everybody was up club. for it. Everybody, the cameras were ready to roll, and they just couldn't get the goose. We haven't explained about the goose yet. That's, That's next, next week. week. Next week's, next week's episode. We have Christmas had lots Eve. of references yeah. to this goose. We have indeed. But no, we will have a new podcast available Christmas Eve, next Tuesday. It's going to be our On the Buses Spectacular. Anyway, I'm causing from the On the Buses fan club website here. In 1988, a stage version of the series toured in Australia, which led to the idea being put forward of a new series of On the Buses being made. Back on the Buses was suggested in 1990, and most of the original cast were believed to be up for reprising their roles. However, despite publicity for the proposed revival, LWT opted not to push ahead with the idea. Now, when they say despite publicity, they really mean it. All the cast, all the original cast, appeared together on Wogan, and you can find it on YouTube. And Reg Farney says we're going to make a pilot, and hopefully it'll be well received, and then hopefully there'll be more of them. Now, in his autobiography, which I think was published by Kaleidoscope, Ronald Wolfe's book, My Life in Memoirs, is the full script for Back on the Buses. So it got as far as that, but unfortunately... It wasn't taken up. And even then, LWT was repeating on the buses around about 1992. So it wasn't as if this had been off the screens for years and years and years. It was still being repeated, I think, mid to late 80s and so on. So it was still fresh in people's minds. And I need to get hold of a copy of this book because I do want to find out for a start how on earth they managed to crowbar Arthur back into the series. Because, of course, Arthur and all of us are supposed to be divorced. At the beginning of series seven. Well, people get remarried. It happens in soap operas. Yeah, but this isn't Neighbours. I mean, this is on the buses. There's supposed <laughs> to be like some sort of an integrity. Scene, interior. Stan is canoodling with a 25-year-old clippy. <laughs> Pause for audience screams. <laughs> you know what they should have done? On the jetpacks. Okay, maybe they shouldn't. Okay, I'm going to... Throw this over to yourself, Ocho. In front of me is the Wikipedia entry for Back on the Buses, in which it actually mentions the details of the plot. Before I read read this, I'm going to ask you, what do you think think, would have been in it? I think I've already heard. I think I already know what this is about. Because isn't this about the deregulation of public transport? It is indeed, Oh, how doctor at the top must that have been? (laughs) Ah, well, let's uh, stop doing any jokes there and let's just talk about how bad things are so back on the buses was to feature stan butler having run his own business for some years and made some money starting his own bus company in the newly deregulated market and hiring jack to work with him as they attempt to get the company off the ground they discover a rival company has set up in the town owned by northern blakey uh, the comedy in the series would have come from the conflict between the two companies and how stan and jack attempted to battle blakey's bigger and more professional outfit so in other words, these guys who are not good at their jobs are being unpleasant to somebody who is good at his. <laughs> there be it. What's wrong with that? Just acts of petty sabotage against somebody whose only crime is providing a good service. When you say petty sabotage, we are talking about 
potentially tampering with public transport with catastrophic results. And this is, this could be terrific. These Stan and Jack should have been locked up. And maybe they were at the end of the proposed series. Maybe they'll be in with Fletcher. Look, if we fail to do this podcast for, say, 12 weeks running, do we just call it quits? So that we don't ever have the shame and the grey melancholy that comes with revivalism. Well, whenever we get to the end of the sitcom club run, I think we want to leave it. What's the what's the average that we're looking at here? I think the average is a bit. It's something like fifteen years we're talking about in terms of the gaps between all of these original shows and the revivals. So, I mean, I'm not putting any kind of date on it, but let's say sitcom club came to the end at some point in the immediate future, then we would be then looking at restaging the revival around about twenty thirty. <laughs> Do you know that every one of these revivals should have been like that episode of Hancock where he has the reunion and it's all these old buddies that he hasn't seen for years and he's full of tales about how hilarious they all are and the hijinks that they got up to. And of course, it's exactly as you'd expect it to be. They all meet, they all exchange pleasantries, they do a little bit of reminiscing about old times and that's it. (laughs) And they've then got nothing more to say. Because they've all moved on. I think Sitcom Club's been like that for quite some time. At least since last April. (laughs) But there wasn't anything before last April. I know. We started off badly. And we've only got worse. Look, we've got new followers now. Oh, my flagging libido. We've got new followers now. We can't be... You know, we've got to to cling on to them. We've got our 12 million viewers. Don't piss them away. Let's get Robin it's Nedwell. It's like that, though, isn't it, when you get old? Let's get Robin Nedwell shoving his John Thomas into a blender. <laughs> I should get a few last for about three minutes. <laughs> That's not how they perform vasectomies. <laughs> this is why they threw you out of medical school. <laughs> that and you brought a flamethrower instead of a fire extinguisher. <laughs> so, revivals. On balance, good or bad? They take... So much work to work that one should be very careful. But who knows? After next Boxing Day, we might say revivals. They're good. Let's hope that Still Open All Hours is lots of fun. Well, yes, fingers crossed for Still Open All Hours. And we will be discussing that on the sitcom club on Hogmanay, New Year's Eve, to those of you outside school. And then for anybody who is... Only just started listening to the sitcom club. January's going to be a bit of a curveball. <laughs> well, as you said last week, we will be doing much, much more in the way of listener requests. So we've had quite a few requests for shows to discuss. I'm going to tell you off mic once we finish recording what I want the next actual sitcom for us to tackle. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you on mic right now an idea that I've got for a future edition of the Sitcom Club. And I think that you're going to hate this idea, but I think that it's a fair exchange because if you're not already aware, we are going to do one episode in the new year, probably in January, which is going to be everything but sitcoms. It's going to be all the drama series that Ocho has been crowbarring into previous episodes. I haven't been crowbarring in. They naturally seem to rise from the conversation. In fact, you've just reminded me that in 1981, ATV did a Callan revival TV movie, and it's awful. 
Do you want to know how awful it is? Because that has its own continuity error. One of the characters forgets how to read. <laughs> Last time we saw him, he was perfectly literate. And then, so, you know I can't read. Wait a minute. Yeah, no, you, you couldn't read in the first two series. You can read now. It's happened before in sitcoms. Gary in Men Behaving Badly. In series three, he can drive. By series six, he's never been behind the wheel. True? Yeah. Look it up. But, no, we are going to do a sitcom club which features principally dramas, principally Dick Turpin, let's be honest. But also, next week, Christmas Eve, we are going to be having our Christmas party. We're going to be playing the On The Buses board game. I might turn up at the end of this week and just rattle through the sitcoms that are going to be on over Christmas once I've got hold of the Radio Times. If you don't hear me saying this in the podcast, that means I haven't, so I won't. And on Hogmanay, like I say, we're going to be talking about Open All Hours, the full series Open All Hours, as well as the new Still Open All Hours, which you'll have seen by that point. And then in January, we're going to be doing a lot more listener requests. So we've had a few requests already. So thank you to everybody who's got in touch with us on Twitter. And if you've previously put in a request, then it will be responded to in the new year. It will be on the shortlist. Ocho, I have an idea for a future sitcom club. And I mean near future. Okay. Not something we're going to kick into the long grass. Sitcom stars in the Prince of the mid-1970s. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're just taking so long. <laughs> You're gonna start talking about sitcom stars in the nip. <laughs> well, actually, it is by a curious coincidence that you said that. I was oh, going to say gonna sitcom stars. British sex comedies, are we? Thank you very much indeed. British sitcom stars in the 1970s who found themselves with an alternative employment source. The Confessions films and the ones that are worse than the Confessions <laughs> films, there are a ton of them and they've all got big name sitcom stars. I'm talking, I'm, I mean, I'm not talking about like middling characters, I'm talking about people, for example, such as Dandy Nichols, Bill Maynard, Doris Hare, Irene Handel, Richard Wattis, Chick Murray, Anthony Booth, of course, famously in the Confessions, Willie Rushton in. The Adventures films. Harry H. Corbett, believe it or not, in one of them. John Pertwee, they're all in there. And so, yes, in a future Sitcom Club episode, I am going to send Ocho a selection. <laughs> and we're going to discuss the exploits, and that is the right word, of the big screen successes Are of we the, do the featuring your favourite sitcom stars. Well, this is the thing. The Amorous Milkman actually isn't really in the same category it's not quite the same it's more dramatic i mean it's the title suggests that it's going to be you know way hey but it really isn't as darren nesbitt that's why i wonder if we're doing it because i've met him got his autograph on my copy of special branch series one we will slip the amorous movement in there but that's more dramatic that's not quite in the same category as something truly appalling like can you keep it up for a week for example which has quite a nice little turn from bob todd in it Who's also in Superman? Let's do Superman three. Bob Todd, Graham Stark, John Bluthall, Pamela Stevenson. Let's do Superman. All right. 3. At some at some point at some point in the future, we will do Superman three. I mean, in the near future, in the next couple of months or so. Is it? Now we're gonna have to wrap this up because we are. 
<laughs> nearly two and a half hours on the bloody recording. God almighty, this is this is longer than the episode that we've just cut in half. Bloody hell. Right, okay. What do you make of that Blakey song, by the way? Blakey song? <laughs> Did you hear it? Makes it, sound, it makes it sound like a tragic drama about... <laughs> Mike Lee. Blakey's song. <laughs> like Benny's song. Uh, she meant so much to me. <laughs> Red fans. <laughs> Before we wrap up, just wanted to also mention that topic that we haven't discussed and I suspect that we're going to run out of time before the end of the year so I'm just going to quickly mention it now is the whole plethora of mini sitcom episodes that you get at this time of year in shows like Christmas Night with the Stars and All-Star Comedy Carnival before mid-1970s when principally 1973 when the BBC expanded its Christmas output to allow each one of its big shows to have a full-on Christmas show. In the years prior to that, you had a compendium of bits and pieces hosted by somebody like David Nixon or Jack Warner and later on the two Ronnies. And they'd have little mini episodes of various shows. And sometimes some of the clips that you see on talking head shows, so to speak, are from those very episodes. For example, the episode of Dad's Army where they have the radio broadcast. That's from A Christmas Night with the Stars show. Now, like I say, we're going to run out of time before the end of the year to actually discuss that in any length. So what I will do is I will direct your attention to the very fine blog by our very own Boganstrovia, Boganstrovia's bit. And he's written a lovely piece about Christmas Night with the Stars and its ITV counterpart. And you can find the link to that at our twitter feed the sitcom club just go to sitcom club and you'll find a tweet from ourselves pointing you in the direction of bogenstrovia's article so ocho it's been a supersized addition is there anything else that you wish to say in your defense before we conclude i take it that you're looking forward to all the top treats that will be available to you on american network television over the christmas period Meh. i'm looking forward to playing through my network itv christmas comedy box set Hey, home to roost. Hey. Well, here's hoping that you delay your Christmas dinner for the antics of Henry Willows as well. And I better remember to leave that bit in earlier on, otherwise that will make no fucking sense. Well, thank you very much indeed for your time today, Ocho. You're welcome. That that was... <laughs> thank you very much for your time. You're not getting paid. <laughs> I once did a job where people were so grateful I thought they weren't going to pay me. <laughs> we go, oh, we couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much. I'm thinking, I'm still getting paid, right? <laughs> the next time the club convenes, it'll be all four of us around the table and we will be getting blakeyed. That's not a euphemism, that's actually part of the board game itself. So until Christmas Eve, from yourself, Ocho. Feliz Navidad. I'm myself, Hey Hope Moon Canton Co. This has been the Sitcom Club.